A Chicago mother has her daughter removed from her by the government, all because she believes her daughter is a girl. Plus, we discuss the latest from my trip to Israel. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. The Ben Shapiro Show is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Protect your data the way that I do. Check it out over at expressvpn.com slash Ben. Well, I've been warning for a very long time that left-wing jurisdictions are going to make it unbelievably difficult to raise your children, that there will come a point where all your kid has to do is mention, for example, that they disagree with you about same-sex marriage or about transgenderism, and the process will begin whereby you're removed from your child. It's going to make it impossible for religious parents to send their kids to religious day school. It's going to be impossible for parents to raise their kids in traditional way, and even in non-traditional ways, as it turns out. There's an amazing story by Kelsey Bolar, a friend of the program over at the Independent Women's Forum, that is well worthy of coverage because this is the direction in which the left would like to see the country move. They've already done this in places like Canada where they've made it illegal for you to tell your boy that he is in fact a boy if your boy says that he is a girl. So here's Kelsey reporting, quote, Jeanette Cooper never imagined she'd lose custody of her child. The 44-year-old lifelong educator always considered herself a loving and responsible mother to her daughter, Sophia. But when, at age 12, Sophia suddenly claimed to be transgender, Jeanette was skeptical. Sophia had never exhibited signs of gender dysphoria. In fact, Sophia exhibited many more traditionally feminine behaviors and preferences than Jeanette ever had. To Jeanette, it didn't make sense. But Sophia insisted not only she was trans, but that she was unsafe around Jeanette. What followed was an almost Kafka-esque series of court proceedings and therapy sessions in which Jeanette's ex-husbands, lawyers, therapists, and other individuals and institutions supposedly concerned with Sophia's best interests worked to erode Jeanette's most basic parenting rights. Nearly three years later, Jeanette can't even visit the daughter she loves. She lives less than 10 minutes away, but can only communicate with Sophia by the mail, all because she says Sophia is a girl. So what exactly is the story here? Well, it turns out that Jeanette is not exactly a traditional Christian mom. Jeanette shaves half her hair, but not her legs, often doesn't wear bras, purchases clothing regardless of whether they're in the men's or women's department. She jokes that if you subscribe to traditional gender stereotypes, she's the one people would think is trans. But that's precisely how Jeanette raised her daughter, outside the confines of traditional sex stereotypes, which, mistake number one. But she says, quote, I don't think there are any bounds on what it means to be a female other than to exist in a female body. There's nothing I have, do I have to do to become female. I simply am. Okay, well, this happens to be biologically accurate. She considers herself a radical feminist, does Jeanette. She has voted Democrat in every election since she was 18. When addressing the discrepancy between her political beliefs and her views on sex and gender ideology, Jeanette said, quote, the difference between libertarianism and anarchy is a fine line. When Jeanette and her ex-husband divorced in 2015, the parenting agreement granted Jeanette custody of Sophia six days, seven nights a week. Jeanette had a tough, says that Sophia had a tough time with the divorce, but she and her daughter were close. Then, Sophia, 12 years old, went on a regular custodial visit to her dad's house. She had no reason to suspect that Sophia would not come home. But at 8.30 p.m., when Jeanette arrived to pick her up, her ex-husband refused to return Sophia to her custody. The next morning, Jeanette learned that Sophia identified as transgender and did not feel safe in her care. Jeanette had no idea why her daughter said she felt that way. Jeanette says she has always made clear that she'll accept her daughter, Sophia, for who she is, but notes that she may have commented in Sophia's presence about news stories regarding teenagers who seek to transition saying these kids need to find a way to become comfortable with their own bodies. Well, her ex-husband violated their parenting agreement for eight full days, right, violating the actual custodial arrangement. Jeanette filed an emergency petition to have her daughter return to her custody. Sophia's dad responded in court documents, alleging that due to the burgeoning adolescence and awaking awareness of self, Sophia was no longer mentally or emotionally safe in Jeanette's home. The court then sided with Jeanette's ex-husband pending an investigation. Jeanette wrote her daughter a letter addressing her daughter as Ash, which is her daughter's new chosen name. Jeanette said, I thought that's what I was supposed to do. 
Jeanette was then told she shouldn't have written the letter at all. Jeanette believed that Sophia's new stepmother, a licensed psychotherapist, had encouraged Sophia to separate from Jeanette. Little by little, piece by piece, Jeanette had said her daughter's stepmother helped orchestrate a custody change under the auspice of saving Sophia. Three years later, Sophia still presents as feminine, but instead goes by the name Ash and uses the preferred pronouns she, jur, and jurs. Under the temporary court order issued shortly after Sophia first claimed to be trans, Jeanette was only allowed to see her daughter if she attended reconciliation family therapy, which has a specific goal of reconciling an alienated child and parent. Jeanette said she would do it. The only thing she objected to was the requirement that her ex-husband's wife be included, giving Sophia's stepmom access to everything that happened during family therapy. Jeanette said she didn't consent to the arrangement, that the therapist said that if Jeanette did not consent, then she wouldn't be able to see her daughter. I was told that if I didn't agree to have the stepmom there, my child is refusing to see me. The therapy sessions were unsuccessful. The court then ordered an investigation. Jeanette has trouble making sense of the allegation her daughter is unsafe around her. She says that's the responsibility of the court to investigate if a child is saying they feel unsafe. I was okay with that. There was a seven-month investigation conducted by a licensed clinical psychologist. It required psychological testing, home visits, and hours of interviews with each patient. Jeanette said, after the report came out, I thought surely this will resolve itself. Clearly, there's no finding of abuse or neglect. But the thing I'm clearly not complying with is the concept that good parenting mean you affirm a child's claim there's something wrong with their body. I'm not willing to do that. I don't think that's good parenting. But the report says that Jeanette needs to, quote, further her understanding of and support of the, of the minor child as relates to the minor child's gender dysphoria. Last year, with her parenting time still suspended and therapy at a standstill, Jeanette entered into a new agreement to avoid a prolonged hearing she feared would end with the same result. Under the terms of the final agreement, Sophia is to remain in her father's custody, no visitation rights for Jeanette without a court order or unless her ex-husband agrees. Since Sophia left the house in 2019, Jeanette said she's seen her, her daughter for a total of eight and a half hours since 2019. All of this simply because Jeanette, who is a radical feminist, who is a radical left-winger, is, um, is refusing to go along with the lie that her daughter is, in fact, a boy or of a different gender than her body. Even though her, her daughter, by the way, is still identifying as quote-unquote femme right? and, and apparently seems to present as a girl outwardly. Here is a clip of Jeanette talking about what, what exactly happened with her daughter. I mean, it's just insane. Again, this, is all, this should all be very scary to any parent who is out there worrying about the the indoctrination cult that our education system has become on these issues. Usually, Child Protective Services has a definition of what it means to be unsafe, to either be abused or neglected. There was no evidence that I had done anything like that. After that report came out, I thought, surely this is going to resolve itself. Clearly, there is no finding of abuse or neglect. They didn't find anything about me that is unsafe. But the thing that I clearly am not complying with is this concept that good parenting means that you affirm a child's idea that there is something wrong with them. I'm not willing to do that. They want me to have a certain understanding that there is such a thing as a child who is born transgender and this is who they are. I don't believe that. My child is a girl. I won't lie to her or anyone else. Okay, but the left wishes you to lie. And if you refuse to lie, then they will go to the courts and they will order you to give up your kid. This should be frightening to everybody, especially because, again, this is a massive social contagion. The number of people who are now identifying as trans in the United States, young people identifying as trans or queer or LGBTQ plus minus divided by sign, ampersand, command symbol, happy face emoji. 
The number of people who are identifying that way in the younger generation is now approaching 21%. And if you send your kids to an area where they are exposed to this ideology and they are pressured and they are celebrated for this ideology, they are likely to at some point evince some interest in the ideology, at which point you might find yourself on the chopping block as a parent. You could have a teacher at the local public school simply declare that your kid needs to be socially transitioned without your awareness. And if you object, then there'll be a court order against you ordering you to give up custody of your kid. This is the way the left is moving, to remove children from their parents. Even left-wing parents like Jeanette, radical left-wing parents like Jeanette. This is all the result of blurring basic knowledge, basic truth. And yes, tradition, because the reality is that understanding the differences between men and women, biological truth is there. We all understand it. But that has been obscured in the name of ideology, which demonstrates that to the radical left, truth is not a value. All that is a value is the crystal castles they are building in the sky in their own head. And so if you try to fight them with the biological truth, you are fighting them with a weapon that they do not care about. That weapon has no effect on them. They're immune to it. It's, it, it is fairly amazing that this ideology has been allowed to trump basic truth. But again, it's not that amazing because if you make basic biologically ingrained arguments about things like marriage, you've also been deemed wildly out of bounds. And that is why I'm, I'm glad to see that the president of the Heritage Foundation, Kevin Roberts, is now fighting back against some of the more libertarian-oriented members of the conservative movement and pointing out that traditional marriage is still a pretty damned important thing in society. And it, it is incredible that we have now reached the point that the controversy is about whether men and women exist. But it's not that incredible when you understand that the entire basis of fundamental civilizational growth is human reproductive capacity, which relies on males and females being distinct and society having an interest in their mating habits and how they raise children. And yet we have tossed all of that out for the sense of sexual satisfaction we are that is to be found within. It's all part of the same broader rubric. Traditional values must die, so I feel satisfied with my sexual life within. Well, all of this spurs from the same source. So good for Kevin Roberts, who's the new head of Heritage Foundation. He put out a statement saying, quote, marriage is a foundational bedrock of human society, one that many on the radical left are seeking to undermine and ultimately sweep away. The concept of marriage between a man and a woman is and must remain non-negotiable. It is a concept foundational to human flourishing and inherent to men and women as image bearers of our creator. Now more than ever, we need leaders who will stand up for these basic truths. The bad faith effort in Congress to weaponize marriage disrespects our fundamental institutions and divides Americans in a quest to score cheap political points, no matter the social consequences. I recognize there are some, including those on the right, who'd rather see the marriage issue just disappear. I want to be clear. I and my colleagues at the Heritage Foundation firmly disagree with that view. We do so with kindness and respect. We should not let the left divide us or weaken our shared interest in blocking this politicized stunt. He's talking about the fact that Congress is now taking up a bill that would enshrine same-sex marriage in law, regardless of a Bergfeld. He says, to self-describe conservatives voicing support for this legislation or assenting with a shrug and a sure why not response, I offer this advice. We will remember how you respond to this moment. The left's attacks on the nuclear family and marriage are tearing at the soul of our country. Their efforts to silence and punish those who hold different beliefs is the opposite of tolerance, respect, or individual liberty. You do have to recognize that the, the movement that we have seen on the left from leave us alone in the privacy of our bedrooms to we need all of our activities celebrated by law. And our perspectives must be ingrained in every legal institution to the point that we can sever every bond between human beings, including the closest bond that exists between mother and child. That is all part of the same concerted push against traditional values. And pushing back against that push is going to require revival of an understanding of traditional wisdom. And one of the great realities of life that we refuse to acknowledge here in the post-Enlightenment West is that many of the things that we do, we do because tradition says we should do them. And if they've improved over time, by thousands of years of practice, maybe I don't need some 
pointy head professor at a major Ivy League university to give me a rationale for why the thing works. If a, if a thing works, you use it. And the simple fact is that if it works, you don't break it. And yet the entire premise of the left is that if you can't explain it, they break it. And even if you can't explain it, they break it, is the reality. Because all that matters to them is the end outcome, which again is this perversely narcissistic notion that the only thing that matters in life is how you identify to the world and the rest of the world is forced to comply up to and including your parents against actual biology. Already in just one second, I've been traveling throughout Israel and give you the updates on how that is going because it really is quite fascinating. First, you've heard me debunk communism, JFK conspiracies and other disputed topics. What I haven't debunked yet is the lies surrounding store-bought meat. Grocery stores and leftists will tell you to buy the grass-fed super omega, morally superior, equity-bringing, live-your-truth beef. Pushing the lie, those labels mean anything at all. Well, they don't mean anything at all. In fact, those labels are often slapped on products imported from overseas with more frequent flyer miles than you have. Here is the label that actually matters. 100% American meat. Good Ranchers has it. Good Ranchers only sources from farms and ranches here in the United States. Maybe you thought a steak cooking over a fire couldn't get more American. It can with any box of Good Ranchers. I'm told the iron levels of the Daily Wire employees is at an all-time high because they've just been stuffing their faces with Good Ranchers. And hell, I don't blame them. They got me a kosher steak. They grilled it on a kosher barbecue. Let me tell you, it was one of the best steaks I've ever had. Ditch the mystery meat aisle order from Good Ranchers today. Trust where your meat comes from. You wouldn't invite a stranger to dinner, so don't invite strange meat. Use my code BEN to get 30 bucks off your box of steakhouse quality cuts plus free shipping. Change the way you think about meat and the way you buy it. Your purchase not only strengthens America's farms, it also supports what we do here at The Daily Wire. They're a company aligned with us ideologically. Go to goodranchers.com slash BEN today. Debunk store-bought meat with me. Okay, so as you may have noticed from our filming setting, I'm actually filming from Israel last week, this week, next week. And um, I got to say, it's it's been pretty incredible to see the progress that has been made in Israel over the course of time. There are a lot of things that Israel needs to learn from America, and there are some things that America really needs to learn from Israel. So there are certain things that, that crop up, obviously, when you travel around Israel. The first thing is that Israel has a bunch of bureaucratic legislation, a lot of regulation. Right. Israel has an extraordinary amount of red tape to, to build a house in Israel. Two years, three years, five years. That's just the regulations. And Israel has extraordinarily high tax rates. In the United States, the overall tax burden is about 24.5% of total domestic income in Israel. It's like 31%. The top tax rate in Israel is 50% and it kicks in way lower than the top tax rate in the United States. In America, it's 37%. In Israel, the top corporate tax rate is 23%. Top corporate tax rate in America is 21%. In Israel, capital gains tax rate is like 25%. For non-controlling shareholders, 30%. For the actual controlling shareholders. In the US, it's 15%. In other words, it's hard to do business in Israel. And yet Israel has somehow, against all odds and against bad policy, exploded economically speaking. It is known as startup nation. It is the place on earth with the most startups per capita. Israel is a very small country. Territorially, it's tiny. It takes you about 45 minutes to drive the width of the entire land of Israel in certain parts of Israel, maybe less. In certain parts of Israel, it's more like 20 minutes. The entire territory of, of the state of Israel is about half the size of New Jersey. You don't really understand the Israeli-Arab conflict until you come here and you spend some time in Jerusalem. Everybody lives cheek by jowl. You can actually visibly see Ramallah from Jerusalem. The parts of Jerusalem that you hear the left talk about dividing Jerusalem, that is not possible. It's like taking your house and saying, during a divorce case, you just divide the house down the middle. You take this bathroom, I'll take this bedroom. It's not going to work. It's very, very foolish. But in spite of all of this, Israel has been able to achieve phenomenal economic success. You know, Israel is burdened with a terrible bureaucratic system. It is dominated by public sector unions. Israel has a terrible judicial system in which the judiciary, you were about judicial activism in the United States. 
at least in the United States, there's a written constitution. There is no written constitution in Israel. So the Supreme Court of Israel basically just writes whatever it wants and everybody's expected to comply. The Supreme Court in Israel actually even appoints its own successors. So imagine Ruth Bader Ginsburg appointing her own successor. That's essentially how it works in the state of Israel. These folks are not answerable to the actual legislature of the state of Israel, the Knesset. Despite all these problems, Israel has seen a lot of success. So what, what Israel needs to learn from America is obviously how to run their government better. Free markets, allowing people to keep more of what they earn, building more, less regulation, right? All those things are necessary. America is actually, you don't realize how well run a country America is, particularly in red states like Florida, where I live, until you come to a place like Israel, which is not particularly well run. You can always tell the difference between, you know, how well run a country is by how many people you have to know to get something done. Israel is still, because it's a small country, and because it's still relatively new, it's only 74 years old. Because of that, you still sometimes have to call the brother-in-law who knows somebody over at one of the ministries in order to get something done. But in spite of that, Israel has grown at an extraordinary pace. And more than that, Israel is has a healthy and vibrant social fabric. So there are lots of divisions in the state of Israel between the religious and the non-religious, between the people who live in Judea and Samaria and the people who live in Tel Aviv, between Arab and Israeli, right? These are all real divisions. But the reproduction rate in Israel is way higher than any place else in the Western world. The reproduction rate in Israel, including in the secular areas, is well above replacement rates. Like kids are a priority in the state of Israel. The, the, the reproduction rate in Judea and Samaria, which are the most biblically historic parts of Israel, right? that'd be like Hebron, Ephrat, right? all, all those areas. There are hundreds of thousands of Jews live over there. So, supposedly outside, quote unquote, Green Line Israel, the disputed territories. The reproduction rate there is 4.6 kids per family, which is extraordinary. In the United States, the number is 1.6. In Tel Aviv, which is the most secular area of Israel, Tel Aviv has a reproduction rate of 2.4. 2.5. Overall, the state of Israel is has a reproduction rate of well over three. The fertility rate in Haifa, which again is a, a very secular area, is 2.4. So Israel is a growing nation state. And the reason it's a growing nation state is because, it, is because it recognizes something that the United States needs to remind itself of today, which is that a nation has to be the key component in a nation state. A state is just a formalization of a pre-existing political arrangement. There has to be a sense of national unity in order for a state to survive. There has to be a sense of common national purpose and common national destiny. Israel does this right. That is because Israel, obviously the Jews in Israel, have a common history. They understand the 2,000-year exile. They understand persecution ranging from the Spanish Inquisition to the Holocaust. They, they understand that they are living on the biblical soil where their forefathers once roamed, where Abraham and Isaac walked the land. They understand that they are walking the exact same sites where David slew Goliath. They get all of that, right? There's a real solidarity about all of that. Even secular Jews, people who don't believe in the biblical origins of the Torah, still understand what the holidays are. In the same way that you know, people who are left in America, they should still understand what July 4th is all about. They should still celebrate July 4th in a real way as opposed to protesting the flag. You don't see secular Israelis protesting the flag of the state of Israel. It's just not a thing here. And the reason for that is, again, because there's a certain level of social fabric and solidarity that exists. Now, it exists because of common religion, obviously. And there's a, a sort of traditional aspect to religion that used to exist in the United States among people who considered themselves more secular. And people would still say that they believed in God. They still believed in general Judeo-Christian principles. That has sort of fallen apart. In Israel, that has not fallen apart in nearly the same way. It may fall apart because Israel tends to adopt all the bad policies of the West at a certain point. Hopefully, it does not. But there, there's something else too. And that is that 
Israel is threatened existentially on all of its borders. And that means solidarity. So if you go back to the 1990s in Israel, so the first time I visited Israel was 2000. 2000 happened to be the beginning of the second intifada. So we were in Israel when the Sparrow's pizzeria was bombed, killing a couple of Americans. Actually, no, the father of one of the people who was killed in that bombing. The, the second intifada period, like right before that, there was a serious post-Zionist movement in Israel that's very similar to the sort of post-American movement in America. The idea that America has no reason to exist. America is historically bad. There's no reason for it to continue. It should fall apart. That'd be better for the world. There was that movement on the left in Israel. And then it turns out that an implacable foe that wants your destruction has a good way of clarifying the mind. Suddenly you realize, wait a second, the people who I thought were my enemies are actually my friends. Those people are actually my brothers and sisters. Americans have stopped thinking about each other that way because we haven't had an existential threat really since the Soviet Union. But the truth is that history will always provide an existential threat to a country that weakens itself from within. In Israel, that reflected itself in a radical shift toward the center-right in Israel. Right now, the Israeli Knesset, the parliament here, 80 of 120 seats should be considered center to center right. And if they're slightly left of center, it's only on religious policy. It is certainly not on matters of military defense, for example. Now, that sort of solidarity is really, really important for a country. And America lacks that level of solidarity. We used to have it. I think we can have it again. Now, that solidarity in American history very often left out marginalized and, and preyed upon groups, most obviously black Americans. But the whole promise of the civil rights movement is that black Americans were now part of the bargain. And then the left has said that they can't be part of the bargain, that nobody can be part of the bargain because the bargain's a lie. That's not true. The bargain is there for all Americans to take advantage of. It's why Hispanics are shifting in a more Republican, conservative direction, because they don't believe the lie that the left is selling. America needs to find the sort of social solidarity, the reason for national existence that Israel has. Israel understands its purpose. It's to preserve the Jewish people. It's to preserve a future for a, a people that has been historically persecuted. It is to provide freedom for all of its citizens, including Arab citizens. Right? That is its goal. And there's a reason for it to exist, and it needs to exist. If Americans can't explain why America needs to exist, needs to, not should, needs to, then America is going to fall apart. And what that means is we need to rediscover our national purpose. That national purpose is embedded in the Declaration of Independence. It's the idea that there are, there are rights that preexist government and are guaranteed by the government. It's the idea that there is a tradition common to the vast majority of Americans rooted in Judeo-Christian virtue. It doesn't require you to go to church, but you have to understand where those virtues came from, that you have more in common with your neighbor than you have that, that differentiates you from your neighbor. As the left pushes, this is why I think the final battle in the United States has to be over social policy, really, not even economic or foreign policy, because the things that, that bind us are going to be things like how we view the, the nuclear family, how we view male and female, how we view the basic institutions necessary for a free society, the little platoons Edmund Burke talked about. America can still get that together. I think that the backlash is coming. I think America will get that together. When you visit a country like Israel, you realize that all anew. And um, I think it is well worthwhile for people to take note of what Israel is doing right and what it's doing wrong because it has a lot of lessons for places like the United States. Already, we'll be back here next week with much, much more content. In the meantime, rest up over the weekend. Enjoy it. We'll be back here on Monday. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to the show. Help spread the word about The Ben Shapiro Show by giving us a five-star review and sharing the show with a friend. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to check out some of our other Daily Wire shows. The Ben Shapiro Show is produced by Bradford Carrington, executive producer Jeremy Boring, supervising producer Mathis Glover, production manager Pavel Wydowski, associate producer Savannah Dominguez-Morris, editor Adam Saievitz, 
Audio mixer, Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup artist and wardrobe, Fabiola Cristina. Production coordinator, Jessica Kranz. The Ben Shapiro Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2022. Hey, everybody, this is Andrew Claven, host of The Andrew Claven Show. You know, some people are depressed because the republic is collapsing, the end of days is approaching, and the moon's turned to blood. But on The Andrew Claven Show, that's where the fun just gets started. So come on over to The Andrew Claven Show and laugh your way through the fall of the republic with me, Andrew Claven. <laughs> 